0: How does it work? Why is it significant for us? Practicing biblical discipleship is on the heart of Jesus for all those who identify themselves as his followers. So it's an important subject for us to press into. It effectively deepens our relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ as we commit ourselves to the process of biblical discipleship. So let's ask again this morning and invite uh, the Holy Spirit to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know God better. Know the heart of God, know the will of God, know the word of God. That's what this is about. That's why we spend time week by week pressing into the word of God because we expect and we anticipate that God wants to teach us what it means to know him better. And that's the heart of a disciple Jesus Christ. So uh, really, to summarize what we've covered the last few weeks, it amounts to this. To live well, if you want to do that, to live well is to prioritize the practice of biblical discipleship. And we've looked at a few elements from the story in Matthew 16 already, and we're going to look at another one in just a few moments. But I thought it'd be helpful to begin again with a testimony from somebody who has been uh, receiving and giving in the realm of discipleship uh, here in the context of our ministry together at Capital City Vineyard. So Stephanie Williams is going to share a few things with us this morning about her experience in a discipleship group, and I'm excited for you to hear from Stephanie about how that group has impacted her life over the last year.
1: All right. So when Carrie asked me this morning, I was like, no, I, I don't want to get up here, and then the Lord started reminding me of all the things that have transpired over the course of doing this, and um, some of the things that have, sharing life and community with my girlfriends, I can call them that, right, <laughs> has been amazing. Um, praying for each other, uh, sometimes we share so much, and cry together, and laugh, and have fun, and we pray, and we leave, but we know what the other one's in need of, and I feel their prayers throughout the week. And it's um, just amazing to share that life with each other. Um, the accountability. I feel um, accountable for my time with the Lord. I feel like I'm kind of spending time with the Lord for them as well to bring something when we come together, which is wonderful. It, um, because I, when he speaks to me, then I feel like it's not just for me. It's for all of us. Um, and it's a safe place to share our hearts, and grow together, iron sharpens iron, and we have shared some things that have sharpened each of us, and been able to correct each other with love, and it's been beautiful, Um, so I would like to encourage all of you to have someone that you can do that with, to share life with, Um, it gives you strength when you go out in the community in life to be the light of Jesus where you go, so find that someone to be part, a part of your life, and share life with in the Lord.
0: have it again next week. Yes. Thank you. Very good. All right. Well, let's turn our attention to Matthew 16, because Jesus has a lot to say about discipleship. And uh, particularly in this passage, uh, what it means to be a disciple and what in, what's involved in that process is right at the heart of Jesus' words to his own disciples. So we're going to read together from Matthew 16, verses 21 to 28. And uh, this is a familiar uh, story, we we read it a couple of weeks ago, uh, but again this morning I want to focus in with you on Jesus' interaction with his disciples at the end of Matthew chapter 16. So we read beginning in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned. And said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. He will reward each person according to what they've done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's the word of the Lord from Matthew 16. So this morning as we continue our exploration of this passage together, we're going to move our focus from the earlier part of the story that we looked at last week, Peter's confession of Christ in verses 13 through 20, to this latter part of the story that we've just read. And as we saw last week in the story of Peter's confession, biblical discipleship begins with understanding and accepting who Jesus is and what he came to do. You see, you can't be a disciple, you can't be considered a disciple of Jesus if you don't know who Jesus is and what he came to do. It starts there, that's the first step. But that is just the beginning of this journey in Christ. Obviously, as most of us know all too well, there is much more to being a disciple of Jesus than simply making a personal confession of faith, as Peter did. You have to start there, but don't stop there, because Jesus is inviting you into a a lifelong journey with him. So what are we to expect, and what are we to commit ourselves to for our growth as disciples of Jesus to continue over the course of a lifetime? Is that your desire, your earnest desire? Do you want to continue to grow in faith as a follower of Jesus Christ? One of the key reasons that I chose this story as our focal point for this month is that it clearly challenges us to think deeply about what true discipleship involves. There's a challenge in these words that Jesus spoke to his first disciples, and that challenge applies to us just as well. As I've heard it said many times Before, Jesus may indeed love you just the way you are. Certainly he does. But he also loves you too much to leave you there. Do you want to be just the way you are for the rest of your life? Or do you want to grow in maturity as a follower of Jesus? The heart of Jesus is to shape your life in his image. So let's consider carefully how Jesus' words to his first disciples also apply to us and what they teach us about this process of discipleship. Here's the first takeaway that I'd put before you this morning. I want you to understand with me that discipleship is an ongoing process. It's not a destination, it's a journey. It's an ongoing process of growing in faith and character toward maturity in Christ by following the instruction and the example of Jesus. Now, there's a lot there to unpack in that one simple sentence. It's a process. It involves growing in faith and character toward maturity in Christ by following the instruction and example of Jesus. Let me unpack that for you just a little bit and look with you at some specific things that Jesus says that help us understand the nature of discipleship. For example, look at verse 21. Matthew 16, 21, Jesus says, actually Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So imagine the scene. Jesus is with his disciples in the northern part of Israel, to the north of Galilee, in the region we talked about last week, known as Caesarea Philippi. And he's there for a purpose. He took them there for an object lesson. We talked about that last Sunday. So if you weren't with us, you can go back and listen to that podcast on our website if you're interested in more information. Jesus took the disciples there on a special journey to share some things with them that he wanted them to understand about his identity, about his mission, about their purpose in following him, and about their participation in the church and the nature of the church. But this verse, verse 21, gives us a glimpse of something more. It gives us a glimpse of what Jesus understood he was meant to do. Jesus understood that something was going to happen to him soon. He understood that he was headed back to Jerusalem from the north of Israel back down to the south. And he was intent on going there with a specific purpose in mind. He knew what was going to happen to him. But this verse also gives us a glimpse into the very special relationship that Jesus had with those he identified as his first disciples. So he huddles them up and he shares with them the secret of what's about to take place. Essentially, They were privileged to hear of what Jesus intended to do. They were the first ones to know about it because they were his inner circle of trusted confidants and friends. He was letting them in on the secret because they were his closest companions. And if you can activate your imagination, just picture Jesus sitting with the disciples explaining to these guys what was soon to happen. This scene is a a radical meditation in trusting God when something doesn't really seem to make sense, as Peter's objection indicates all too well. But I think that this verse also begs a very simple question, right? Here's Jesus explaining to his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be put to death and then rise again. But just in that description, just in that simple little phrase Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, I think we're led to wonder, well, what is a disciple anyway? Who were these guys, and why were they privileged to sit with Jesus and and get this insider information from him? What was the nature of their relationship to him, and how does that apply to us? What is discipleship, and and what exactly does it mean to be identified as one of Jesus' disciples? Where does the word come from, and what does it mean? Well, let me explain a few things about this word, because its etymology is significant to its meaning. In English, it's the word disciple, and if you were to, uh, it's translated really from the Greek word uh, (laughs) mathetai. Mathetes. You have to get uh, the the emphasis on the right syllable, right? Mathetes. Mathetes. It's a little hard to say because it doesn't make any sense in English. Uh, But that Greek word, mathetes, is actually uh, perhaps a little bit more uh, understandable if you look at it in its Latin form because it's closer to the English. The Latin word, desere, means to learn. And Discipulus means learner. So somehow the Greek got translated to Latin and then the Latin to English. So we go from mathetes to disciple and discipleship. But the key point here that I'm making is that these words refer to being a learner. Being a learner, being identified as a learner. For someone to be discipled is for them to keep on learning. But here's the key to that concept. You see, in Hebrew culture, learning was not as didactic as it is, was in Greek culture and, and as it is in our culture, right? We think of learning as, you know, like sitting in a classroom or sitting in an auditorium and listening to somebody teach, like we are now. But I want you to understand that for the Hebrew people, particularly at this time in history, in the first century, learning was much, uh, much different. There was a different style of teaching and learning that these people had adopted and that was familiar to them. So when you would talk about being a disciple in that context, their understanding of what that meant and what that looked like was very different than ours tends to be. Among the Hebrew people of the first century, we should understand that the concept of a mathetes referred to something more than just a typical pupil or classroom learner. In the broader world of that time, and particularly within Judaism, people would become committed adherents to a recognized leader or movement. And then they would be apprenticed to that person in particular. And this could happen both in the religious sphere and in the political sphere. So in Judaism at that time then, to be a disciple often meant living with and learning from a particular rabbi that you respected. And you would become then, as his disciple, you would become that rabbi's apprentice. Typically, in Jewish culture, the Torah was taught in homes until a boy reached 13 years old, when his formal education at home was completed. Wouldn't that be great, all you homeschoolers or teachers, you know, if you could just be done at 13 and pass them off? But um, anyway, side note. If, if somebody wanted further training after their parents were finished with them at 13, they could choose to continue their study of the Torah in a small group of disciples of a particular rabbi. So that's where this whole methodology of rabbinic instruction became popular at this time in history and in Jewish culture. So for example, in Acts 5.34 you see an example of this with, with Paul. We're told that the man who became the Apostle Paul, previously known as Saul, grew up as a Jewish boy in the city of Tarsus. And when he became uh, 13 at the age of, um, whatever, adulthood at that time after his bar mitzvah, he moved to Jerusalem where he went to study as a disciple under Gamaliel, who was a famous Jewish rabbi based in Jerusalem. So Saul, as a young man, was discipled by Gamaliel. And that was typical of the time for those who wanted to learn more about the law and the Torah. In cases like this, discipleship meant much more than just a transfer of information. It wasn't just about book learning or knowledge. What it really referred to was learning to imitate the teacher's life and faith. So to be identified as a disciple of someone was to say, I want to learn to be like them. I want to learn to live my life the way that they live their life. It referred to learning, to to imitate the teacher's life and faith, learning to inculcate their values so that their values became your values, and even learning to reproduce their teachings to the next generation, to others. So it it was about becoming like, the rabbi that you chose to follow so that his life and faith would be reproduced in you. That's what's behind the biblical concept of being a disciple. So notice then, a little further down in our text, Matthew sixteen twenty four, Jesus makes this statement, this word of explanation to his disciples. He says to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is an invitation. And it's not just an invitation for those first disciples who heard Jesus speak to them these words directly. These words of invitation apply to us as well. And we'll talk some more next Sunday about denying yourself and taking up your cross. We're going to come back to that. But for now, just focus with me on the tail end of this statement, this saying in verse 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple, Jesus says, must follow me. Follow me. To follow someone like Jesus is literally to go the way that they go. Or to act the way that they act. Or to live the way that they live. It's not contrary to popular opinion in our culture, to simply watch what they post on social media. As the old saying goes, discipleship is more caught than taught. It's more caught than taught. In other words, teaching and learning is like intellectual learning and knowledge is involved in the process But this type of learning, being discipled, is is more about learning a particular way of doing things, a particular way of living life. That's what Jesus had in mind for his disciples. So the best way to learn then is the old apprentice model, right, where you watch the master do something, and then the master explains it to you, and then the master watches you try to do it and gives you feedback and input, tells you how you did and what you need to do differently, until you master the skill, and then the master releases you to go do it. That's called the apprentice model of learning. And that's what Jesus had in mind by inviting his disciples to follow him around the countryside for three years. He wasn't just teaching them head knowledge. He was showing them a way of life so that they would take it upon themselves as their own way of life. In fact, did you know that the earliest form and expression of what we now call Christianity had a nickname in the early days? Anybody know what it was? The way. Before it was ever called Christianity, the process of following Jesus and identifying with him was known as The way, the way, like as in the Ohio State University, right? The way. I'm not a fan of Ohio State. It's just, you know, the the way that they emphasize the word the, I think, applies in this case as well. This name was given to it because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what he he meant by that and what was was sort of behind the nickname, the way, is that the right way of living life is the Jesus way. The best way of living life is the Jesus way. And that means that at any time, if our lives begin to deviate from his instruction and example, it's time to get reoriented back into his footsteps, back to his example again. In following Christ, the goal that we're aiming for is Christ likeness. That's the essence of what the Bible refers to as spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is maturity in Christ or Christ likeness. In Hebrews 6, 1 to 3, We read this, let us move beyond the elementary teachings of Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. See, there's an idea of movement, forward movement. Don't get stalled out on your journey, but keep moving toward Maturity. In another reference on this subject, Ephesians 4, 11 to 13 Paul writes, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers, for what reason? To equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become Mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There's the definition of maturity right there. Paul gives it to us, point blank. Maturity is attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Anybody there yet? (laughs) No, we're all a work in progress, but that's what we're aiming for. So discipleship isn't just about learning new information. It's about formation more than about information. Formation into the likeness. Of Jesus Christ. The question is, are you continually and progressively becoming more Christ-like in your attitudes and in your actions? Now, what else does this interaction in Matthew 16 teach us about the process of discipleship? Let me show you a couple of other things, two other things that I think are significant insights from this passage. And here's the next one. It might surprise you a little bit because it's not readily evident as you read the text, but it's behind and beneath the text. I want you to understand that the Jesus way of doing things exemplified that the word of God reveals the truth and the will of God. The Jesus way of doing things exemplified to Jesus' disciples that the word of God reveals the truth and the will of God. So, again, back to Matthew sixteen twenty one. From that time on, Matthew writes, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the thir- third day be raised to new life. Think about the little phrase, again, at the beginning of that statement that Matthew makes. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, this is an interesting insight, I think, because it seems a little disconnected from Jesus' actual words here. But ask yourself a question. How did Jesus know in advance what was going to happen to him? Have you ever wondered about that? How was he able to predict with absolute precision what was going to happen to him before it ever happened? Well, you might say the Holy Spirit showed him. There was a, a revelation from the Spirit. It was a gift of the Spirit that Jesus would have that insight from God. And that's probably true in some sense as well. But there's more to it than that. You see, Jesus knew what was going to happen to him because it was all prophesied in the Word of God. It was all there in black and white, in the words of the Old Testament. Matthew says Jesus was trying to explain these things to his disciples. And I'm not sure that we're told the whole story of how that explanation went and what was included in it. I think Matthew's just giving us the short version, the summary. I wish I could have been there to hear Jesus' actual words as he tried to explain this to his disciples. But as he began to explain it, notice the language that Matthew uses. Jesus was telling them, I have to do this. This is not a choice that I get to make. I must go to Jerusalem. I must be killed. I must. And he knew that he must do that and was actually able to explain it because it was previously prophesied in the Word of God. Jesus knew that the Word of God regarding the Messiah had to be fulfilled in and through him. And he knew the Word, upside down and backwards, inside out. Jesus was not just a man of his Word. That's a phrase or a saying that we use to talk about somebody who's you know, a person that can be trusted to say what they mean and mean what they say. Jesus was a man of his word. But more importantly than that, Jesus was a man of the word, right? The word was right at the center of everything Jesus did. So being a man or woman of the word then is essential to us for our ongoing growth as disciples. It's the Jesus way of doing things. That your life would be centered on the Word of God. Like Jesus, we need to allow our lives to be shaped and molded by the truth of God's Word, which reveals His will for us. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here, because it might still seem a little obtuse. When's the last time you read Isaiah 53? Maybe you can't remember, maybe it's been a while. How many of you know exactly what it says? Raise your hand if you know what Isaiah 53 is about. How many of you have it committed to memory? Anybody? Okay, let me tell you something, friends. Jesus knew Isaiah 53 by heart. And not only that, Jesus knew that it applied to him. Jesus knew that it was a word about his life. His mission, his destiny. In fact, he would have known this passage so intimately that I'm convinced as he's explaining what's going to happen to him, this is probably what he's thinking about. These words from Isaiah 53. And that's not the only passage, but it's probably the most significant and the clearest one that spoke about the suffering of the Messiah prophetically. It's a messianic prophecy about a suffering servant who would die for the sins of others. And it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. Jesus would have committed that passage and probably the whole book of Isaiah, perhaps the whole Old Testament, to memory. Here's what it says, listen to this, and think about these words being at the forefront of Jesus' mind as he explains to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and must be killed. Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 12, speaking of the Messiah who was yet to come, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was punished he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth yet it was the lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and through the lord and though the lord makes his life an offering for sin he will see his offspring and prolong his days And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession the transgressors isn't that amazing to think that Jesus knew that by heart that he was such a man of the word that those words formed his identity and shaped his his mission that's why he knew that he must go to the cross and now think about this a little bit more broadly with me Consider, if you just back out and kind of look at the bigger picture of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, consider how many times you find Jesus quoting directly from the Old Testament. Have you ever thought about this? Four gospels, there's about 80 or 89, I think, if I remember correctly, chapters in the four gospels. One source I found puts the precise number of direct quotations from the Old Testament at 78 recorded in the four gospels so in other words almost once per chapter jesus is quoting from the old testament and there are references from 15 different old testament books and now bear in mind right jesus didn't carry around a little pocket gideon bible right he didn't have his little device that he could haul out and google you know what was that verse again i can't remember that reference No, when he taught, the word just flowed out from within him. And those 78 quotes, that doesn't even include the number of like allusions or or references that aren't like direct quotes. Everything Jesus said was rooted in the word of God and connected to the word of God. That's what I mean when I say he was a man of the word. It was at the very center of how he lived his life. So all this to say that Jesus' thoughts and words were saturated by the Word of God. And it's fair to say that he had most, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized. He knew the Word intimately. He trusted it entirely. And he walked it out perfectly. So if you aim to live a life the Jesus way you have to become a person of the word. It's essential. This is not optional. This is not an elective. This is is basic to being a disciple, that you would be a person of the word. But now one more thing here before we wind this down. Discipleship's not just about learning and knowing the word of God. What Jesus also exemplifies for us in this passage is that it's about learning to obey. Submit and obey to the Father's will. The Word of God has to move, and the will of God revealed in the Word of God has to move from our heads to our hearts and then out through our hands and feet. As James says, it doesn't do much good to be a hearer of the Word if you don't become a doer of the word. And that was the life of Jesus. That was the ministry of Jesus. What I'm saying, to boil it down here, is that the Jesus way of doing things was always focused on submission and obedience to the Father's will. Even at the cost of his own comfort. So again, Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Notice something about this verse. Notice what it is that Jesus is explaining. He's explaining his own death before it happened. And we've alluded this, you know, to this already by reflecting on Isaiah 53. But, but think with me now about how Jesus would have explained this to his disciples. Do you suppose that he was afraid? Or do you suppose perhaps that he was stressed out about the fact that these people were plotting his murder? How would you feel if you knew somebody was plotting your murder? That'd be scary, wouldn't it? Would you be afraid? Would you be stressed out? Would you be like freaking? What am I going to do? Somebody's trying to kill me. Just think about that. He's explaining his own death before it happens. I mean, and when I think about it, I try to imagine. I I don't think Jesus was like, you guys are not going to believe this. You're not going to believe what these people are trying to do to me. They're trying to kill me. What do I do? Or, or do you think Jesus was in some way trying to avoid his own death? Like, guys, you've got to rescue me. Yeah, you, like, you could, you could disguise me and then sneak me out of here and we could, I could get away. You know? No. Jesus is not obsessed with trying to escape his destiny. He's not afraid of what lies before him. He's not stressed out or anxious about what lies before him. He's determined to obey the will of the Father, even at the cost of his own comfort, even at the cost of his own life. The most important thing to Jesus was being submitted in obedience to the Father. So he wasn't stressed out or afraid about what he was explaining. He wasn't even resigned to it with some sense of dread or foreboding, at least not at this point. I mean, perhaps there's a glimpse glimpse of that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating blood on the night before it happens. But no, Jesus embraced his calling. He embraced his destiny. He embraced the Father's will, even at the cost of his own comfort. Jesus knew what would happen to him, and more importantly, he knew why it would happen, so he faced it with courage and with the conviction to walk in obedience to the Father's will. Even in the garden, remember what he prayed when he's sweating blood the night before it happened? Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will be done. Thy will be done. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the essence of how he lived his life. See, so what I want you to notice is that there seems to be no sense of anxiety or foreboding about what was to come for Jesus. People were clearly out to get him, but Jesus saw it all as part of the Father's plan, and he knew. As long as it's God's will, I'm going to walk toward it and embrace it, even if it hurts. So even facing his own death, Jesus was a non-anxious presence. I love that term. It's stolen from a a book, Uh, I won't go into all the details about that, but some of you are familiar with the concept. Jesus was a non-anxious presence in every circumstance. He found perfect peace, or shalom, in obedience to the Father, and nothing ever stressed him out. as we saw last month in our study of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, his mindset was so focused on serving the Father's will that he actually said in John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He cared more about obedience to the Father's will than he did about food. And in that sense, as disciples of Jesus, we are all called to learn from And follow his example. So yes, we're saved by grace. But that's not the end of the story. By the grace of God, God wants to lead us in a life of obedience to his will. And we need his help to do that. We need to walk by the spirit and live by the spirit so that we can keep in step with the spirit so that our lives can become conformed to the will of God. It's not something that we do on our own, apart from God. It's not something that we do for the favor of God or to earn our salvation or any kind of right standing with God. No, this is something God invites us to do with his help for his glory, in response, in worship, in gratitude, in response to what we've received from him. We do it as followers of Jesus out of gratitude for the salvation and grace that God has released in our lives. We do it to honor God and to serve God's purposes, not to earn salvation, as is the case in many other of the religions of the world. So the good works that God has called you to do, the things that God has in mind for you to accomplish as a disciple of Jesus Christ, involve obedience. Obedience is a good thing, not a bad thing. I'm not talking about legalism or self-righteousness or any of those kind of, you know, religious ideas. What I'm talking about is living your life in obedience to the Father's will so that you can honor him and serve him and glorify him with who you are. And that's an act of the will, but it's also an act of grace at the same time. Let me uh, wind this down, wrap this up. With, with one last reference from Ephesians 2 because I think this captures so well the balance that I'm trying, to, I'm trying to strike here between what we do and what God does for us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace. Through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are... God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, this is what following Jesus and becoming more and more like Him really amounts to. We've been given new life in Christ, we've received grace through faith in Jesus Christ, so that now. We can do the good works that God has prepared in advance for each one of us. That he would be glorified, that he would be served, that he would be honored, and that our lives would reflect Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our lives have become God's handiwork, Paul says, or a more literal translation is work of art. Your life is God's work of art. Think of yourselves as a blank canvas. You you might start out kind of trying to draw something on that canvas, and over the course of your lifetime, apart from Christ, it kind of becomes a mess. It doesn't look very good. But when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God erases everything on that canvas. Not the essence of who you are as a person or your personality, but all all the junk, all the sin, everything that you've messed up on your own is removed from the picture so that God can draw or paint what he wants upon that canvas. Paul's saying each one of us is God's work of art. And that work gets displayed to the world as we walk in obedience to the Father's will.